Welcome to the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom, a supplement to our monthly podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Here we discuss shareholder activism with some of the industry's top experts. I'm Ilana DeRay, a financial reporter with Activist Insight. And today, we are chatting with Abbott Cooper, a managing member of Driver Management Company. Driver is an activist investor that focuses on microcap banks. In the past year, Driver launched campaigns at DNB Financial and First United, pushing both firms to sell. According to Activist Insight Online, 37 banks were publicly subjected to activist demands as of November 12th, down from 40 during the same period last year. High-profile situations of 2019 included Blue Lion Capital's proxy contest at Home Street, Sherborne Investors' board battle at Barclays, and Value Act Capital Partners' settlements with Citigroup. Today, Abbott will talk to us about his experience engaging in shareholder activism at banks. Hi, Abbott. Welcome to the show. To start off, I'd like to know, how did you become an activist investor? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I became an activist investor after spending probably about eight years as an investment banker covering banks. And as I was out traveling around meeting bank management teams, it dawned on me that really the key to whether or not a bank was going to perform well or not came down to management. And it was pretty clear to see who had the good management teams and who didn't. And because it's a very commoditized industry, it remains a very fragmented industry, but consolidation is kind of the biggest trend in the industry overall and has been, you know, for the better part of 40 years. It seemed like somebody should be helping consolidation happen because what happens with these banks is the CEO and the board, in many cases, don't have a lot of stock. They don't have a lot of skin in the game. They're there preserving their paychecks, the privileges that come with being directors. Meanwhile, other banks who want to buy them, shareholders who want to see consolidation, et cetera, are kind of waiting for these for transactions to happen. They're just waiting for boards and, and CEOs to decide it's finally time to sell. And I thought that there was an interesting opportunity to get in there and, and help those guys speed up that decision-making process. Like I said, I was a banker for a long time covering these banks. After leaving investment banking, I ran a long-only strategy focused on banks. And I just became more convinced that the opportunity really existed for somebody to do activism and what I thought was a little bit of a different way than it was being done. So you spoke about this a little bit, but why is the banking sector so attractive? And is it your only focus or do you also look at other sectors as well? It's our only focus. I have a partner who I worked with in banking and it's really, it's it's what we know. So, you know, we, we understand the banking ecosystem as it were. We know who the players are. We know, understand the market dynamics very well. There's plenty of opportunity, we think, for us. So we don't feel the need to expand into other sectors. And we just don't think we would have an edge necessarily in those other sectors as well. In terms of why the banking sector is so attractive for, for activism, again, it's because there are still so many banks in the U.S. I mean, there remain over 5,000 banks in the U.S. Uh, you know, people are obviously familiar with J.P. Morgan, Chase, City, you know, the big banks, but there's literally thousands of other smaller banks. Some of those banks are private, they're family owned, you know, they don't have shareholders, they can kind of do whatever they want. But for a lot of these banks who went public, you know, there's really not a lot of reason for them to exist as an independent entity. They have high fixed costs in terms of infrastructure, things like that. 
when banks acquire other banks, they can take advantage of economies of scale. So there's tremendous cost saves in any bank M&A deal. As I said before, like consolidation is just the dominant trend sort of force in the industry. And there's just a, a great opportunity to kind of hasten that in a lot of instances. Is there something about the macro environment, which looks quite unfavorable for banks, that has accelerated this trend? I think that bank M&A will become more important as the economy starts to slow down a little bit. You know, obviously, like I said, there's a lot of banks out there. You know, most of them are not going anyplace. They need to continue to show their investors and research analysts that they're growing earnings. As loan demand slows, the best way for them to show earnings growth is to do an M&A deal where they can take out a lot of cost saves. There's continue to be a lot of bank M&A. So about 5% of banks are sold every year. Uh, you know, the number of banks that are out there, about 5% are sold every year. And I think that, again, as the economy starts to cool a little bit, there's going to be a lot of pressure on banks to show earnings growth. And the best way for them to do it is through M&A. Are there more regulatory hurdles to overcome at banks compared to activism at non-bank stocks? Well, certainly it's a highly regulated industry. Bed Bath & Beyond was in the news today, and they don't have the same type of regulatory framework that a bank would have. Becoming a bank holding company or controlling a bank holding company is a special thing. You know, There's a special status associated with that, and there are obviously a lot of responsibilities, including being a source of strength to the bank. So nobody wants to become a bank holding company, and there are a lot of things that they have to avoid so they don't become a bank holding company. In terms of activism, the biggest thing is there are limitations on how much stock you can own and how many directors you can nominate uh, or put on a board. I think that those guidelines don't really take into account the types of things that we're doing where we want to put people on the board who are totally independent from us. We're going to be elected by all shareholders. I think that they're more geared towards instances like during the financial crisis when private equity firms would come in and they would put their own employees on the board, you know, people that you could say, yeah, I guess they control those people. But when you're talking about independent directors, you know, if I put somebody on the board who's an independent director, I don't control them. You know, they're their own person. Activist investors are only going to own between 5 and 9.9% of the stock. So if they want to have their directors elected, they have to choose really well-qualified people with a lot of experience who are exactly the type of people who are not going to be controlled by an investor. So to me, it's a framework that doesn't make sense. Hopefully, the Fed will take a look at that, but it's definitely something that people need to be cognizant of if they're going to do activism in banks. I understand Driver recently advanced the three-person slate at its latest target, First United. How much does what happened at Home Street, where an activist had its slate disqualified and then lost the follow-up contest, concern you in this campaign? Well, you know, all these situations are different, right? So I think that Home Street's very different from what we're doing. I think that the shareholder base at Home Street at the time when the activist started his campaign there is very different from the shareholder base at First United. For instance, at Home Street, there are a lot of passive investors who are going to rely on, you know, Glass-Lewis and ISS recommendations. First United's not in any index. Most of their holders are actively managed funds who are going to, you know, focus on this, on the merits, the things that concern ISS and Glass-Lewis might not concern the shareholders that Funk has right now. I think that what the value proposition that we're offering to shareholders is very different. You know, we're saying, hey, you should sell. That I think that offers shareholders a choice between you know, the market price and before we got involved, it was about 
17 bucks a share. It's now close to 23. And what we think that they'd be worth in a sale, which is 26 to $32 a share. So that seems like a pretty easy decision to make. I think at Home Street, it was a little bit more complicated where the activist was saying, hey, change your business model. At the same time, the company had said, hey, we're going to change our business model. You know, there wasn't any disagreement about what should happen. Obviously, the devil's in the details. And, you know, whether or not the activists had a better specific plan than the company was something that I don't think, you know, anybody really, quite frankly, cared to figure out one way or the other. And then, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of inertia with a proxy contest. If you don't have a very strong appealing message, it's hard to do. Also, there were, I think, a few technical missteps. People come down hard on the activists about getting tripped up by the Washington State Department of Banking on not seeking approval to solicit proxies. My view on that's a little different. I think a lot of these state regulators are kind of handmaidens of the state chartered banks because guess who pays their salary? To me, it was it was a little kind of ticky tacky. wasn't really an issue because at the at the Fed level, at the holding company level, the Fed specifically says soliciting proxies is okay. You don't need to get a prior approval. And, you know, it feels to me like Home Street went to their state regulator and said, hey, don't forget who hosts the pancake breakfast every year. Can you help us out here? Switching gears a little bit, which governance issues should bank investors be most concerned about? Well, I think that the governance issues that bank investors face are the same issues that any investors face. The one difference in going back to the point about how many directors and activists can run for director, that's something that the Fed should really focus on because running a proxy contest is an expensive and time-consuming thing to do. And the only people who are going to do it are people who have you know, a sizable stake in a company and or significant resources. So that's going to be somebody who could be limited in terms of the number of directors that they can run. I think that does a huge disservice to the other investors who are subject, you know, if the board is bad, those investors should be able to vote for a whole new slate of directors. The Fed is helping entrench bad directors or poor performing directors. So I think that's something, you know, we're going to probably write an op-ed piece and have hopefully we'll get it in some of these papers to address this point. That's something that I think is people should be aware of is that the Fed is essentially helping entrench bad boards by doing that. Other than that, certainly the regulatory environment, the regulators can come in and they can force banks to do things that you don't see in other situations. So for instance, in First United, they had a terrible experience during the financial crisis. The Fed came in, the regulars came in and forced them to halt their dividend. So they didn't have a dividend for the better part of eight years because they were in terrible financial shape. So so those things can happen. I don't know if they're really governance issues, but you know, they're definitely, the, the regulars can always show up and force the board to do things such as changing their business plan stopping the dividend, adding more capital, things like that. They will only do that if the bank is in bad condition. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's something people should be aware of. Do you think big banks like Barclays or Citi can cut themselves to profitability? I think it's a case-by-case type of thing. You know, Citi, I kind of understand how they would do it. Barclays, to me, it's a little less clear. Quite frankly, I don't really know what Barclays is, particularly in the US. And certainly the investment bank, you know, is a huge cost center. 
I don't know if cutting that is part of their plans. I think it really depends on the bank. I think if a bank has a very solid business and, and great markets, you know, obviously you can cut costs to profitability if the core business is is shaky. And there's obviously some big banks, big European banks out there who have activists in them who are trying to force change. But like, I just don't know what the core business is worth. And I think a lot of people are, are struggling with that as well. For our final question, I'd like to know what were your most successful and least successful campaigns to date? And what did you learn from them? So I've only done three and one's still going on. So that leaves the other two to pick from. The most successful was TNBF was a bank outside of Philadelphia where um, we filed a 13D in January asking them to explore a sale and they ended up selling, announcing a sale in June. The stock went up about 55% in between, including you know the, the price of the announcement. So that, that worked out pretty well. It was pretty quick. That's a perfect template for how this type of activism should work because at the end of the day, it was really a great deal for everybody. It's obviously a great deal for shareholders. It was a great deal for the management of DNBF where they got paid their change of control. And you know, the CEO of DNBF is going to be the market president for the, you know, the combined company. The, the customers of DNBF now have this kind of the stability of a much bigger bank who can offer more products and services. You know, they tried to grow commercial loans and they just didn't have a balance sheet to be able to do it. Now they will have a balance sheet. And for S&T, who is the buyer, it just made a lot of financial and strategic sense. They were able to get critical mass in an important market to them. So that was kind of a success all the way around. The least successful campaign was with a bank called National Bank Shares in Blacksburg, Virginia. They really overcapitalized. So they had about 15% capital, which is more than half again the amount of capital other banks had, and they had just accumulated it over time. So they were profitable, they were making money, and they're in a relatively slow growth market. So it's not like they needed capital to grow, and they just weren't paying out enough in a dividend or stock buyback. So capital continued to grow. They didn't know what to do with it. It's one of these banks where they very limited analyst coverage. I think only one bank covers them. They never talk to investors. And they just did this because that's just how they always did it. And so I talked to the CEO and, you know, communicated with the board that they should buy back stock. They went out and did it at the beginning of the year. They bought all the shares of one of their biggest holders. So they bought about 5% of the stock, you know, in one fell swoop. And the market's reaction was crickets. You know, nobody cared. You saw the impact of the stock buyback in terms of their EPS and the return on equity, but it wasn't reflected in the stock price. And the big takeaway from that is for these small banks, nobody really cares about that stuff. People like it when they sell, but they don't really care about any type of corporate finance initiatives, anything like that. It was very disappointing for the CEO who I'd convinced to do this. And part of it was also they never went out and sold the story to investors. And that was another feeling is like some of these guys just don't want to talk to investors. They just don't care. They want to sit in their office and they'll do whatever. I mean, it's a profitable bank. So he's doing something right to some degree, but it would never go come to New York, for example, have a roadshow and be like, hey, we're very profitable. We're returning capital. Our yield on our dividend is great. So it's just like, all right, if you're not going to create demand for the stock, I don't know what to tell you because nobody's going to seek out a bank with zero research coverage that nobody's ever heard of and try and figure out what's attractive about it, you know, if you're not going to kind of meet them halfway. The big takeaway from that is for the activism of a small bank, it's best to just focus on instances where they should sell and, and push for that. 
That was Abbott Cooper, a managing member of Driver Management Company. That's it for this episode of the Activist Insight Podcast, Beyond the Boardroom. If you would like to join us on a future episode, or if you have any comments or questions, please email press at activistinsight.com. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Ilana Zaray. Thanks for listening.